This October, the church will observe on the 22nd, the culminating event that sent our young small group of pioneers that fragmented from that larger group in our church, that day that we call the what? The great disappointment, right? And that the group that our pioneers belonged to had been preaching for years that Jesus would return on October 22nd, 1844. I always wondered why we celebrated on the day that he was supposed to return when actually the day of the great disappointment was the next day, right? Because the next day we were all still here. That, it should be October 23rd, but anyway, it's October 22nd. Do you realize it'll be the 178th year? The 178th year this October that we will look upon that. And we have to remember, uh, and we know and we recognize that arising out of the ashes of 1844 comes at the end in uh, our nation known as the Second Great Awakening. Probably the second greatest revival the Christian church has ever seen on the planet. The first being that which started over in Europe about 100 years before. It's the event or the revival that made our nation or... I, I hesitate to say made our nation, I'll say at least it deluded this nation to believing that we were a Christian nation. And we were armed, that group, that group of pioneers, we were armed with what we knew was biblical truth. And it was a sight to see from 1850 to around 1885. It appeared that the nation was Christian through affiliation and attendance and membership. Attendance and membership had, had tripled during the Second Great Awakening. Truly, truly, it looked as if we really were what we claimed to be. Most of all social issues and programs were either led by churches or they had a strong uh, uh, leadership influence by churches themselves, temperance, abolition, health reform, mental health reform. All of our Bible societies, the American Bible Society, the United Bible Society, the American Missionary Society, the United Missionary Society, all began in this country during the Second Great Awakening. It looked like it really was a nation of believers. So our approach to evangelism during those first 40 or so years of together? What was our approach to evangelism? What was, what was the, the impetus behind it? What was the DNA to our mission and our evangelism? What does your evangelism look like when you're trying to reach other Christians with just some further or what we now call present truth? Do you know what our evangelism was? We'd start a fight. And we were good at it. We'd show up in a town with no, uh, what you would say, Adventist presence would be, and it would be full of Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists. And we go into the town square and we put up a poster telling them that they're worshiping on the wrong day. And if you want to know what the right day is and the right way to worship God, just come out to that tent that you've seen us pitch out there. We were innovative too, we were using tents. We were using things that only the world used. 
burlesque, circus, we'd take those tools and we'd use them. And when those people showed up looking for a fight, guess what? We'd win that fight because we were good at it. And we had something on our side. What was it? The truth. The truth. What we failed to notice is what kind of members do converts make when they're one with a fight? What we failed to notice is that the people that are won to the truth by a fight, in other words, the people, uh, there's an old saying that no one was ever won to Christ by losing an argument. And I believe that's true. No one is ever won to Christ by losing an argument. But I will tell you, a lot of church members become church members by losing an argument. And unfortunately, being won to Christ and being a church member can be two completely different things, can't it? So what we didn't notice was that we were taking all of the uh, most contentious, meanest people from other churches and making them members of our church. And by the way, whenever you've been beaten in something and you join whoever beat you, what's the first thing you wanna do? I wanna go beat somebody else. So the mission in our DNA or the DNA in our mission was continued to be what? To be perpetuated. Until we were given a specific message around 1880 and we'll talk a little about 1888 and how God tried to recenter the church around who? Around Jesus. See, we were winning other Christians. We didn't have to tell them about Jesus. They already had Jesus, supposedly, amen? But the nation was changing, wasn't it, by 1880? We were actually moving, our, our whole culture, our whole economy, everything was changing. We went from an agrarian society to an industrial society within 10 years. Immigration skyrocketed in order to be able to, to feed this new industrial uh, monster, this new industrial beast that, that was arising, which meant that there were people coming from all over the world who weren't necessarily what? They weren't necessarily Christian. And God said, I need my people to fall in love with Jesus again. And by the way, did it happen in 1888 like it was supposed to? Nope. In fact, we're still here, aren't we? So I start with this to begin an approach because I told you before that what I would like to do, uh, what we need to do, what I believe end time remnant preaching should be is that if in the end there is a false and a true church vying for the world's worship, that we should know how to tell them apart. Amen? And that's what I said, I wanna to begin to really begin to tell these two gods apart and these two churches apart. So to, to, to review, we have two churches. The church of the lamb that was slain, how many here are members of that church? It's not a trick question. I saw only like four hands go up, really? Do you wanna be a member of the other one? But how does the church of the lamb that was slain operate? What is her mission? 
What does she do? What is the, what is the behind the woman? They, they only govern by one thing, and what is it? Love, because the woman reflects the creator. The creator decided that he was going to rule this universe by only one governance, and that governance was what? Love, and in order to be and to have love and creatures of love, you've gotta give them free will, you've gotta give them freedom. And if you're going to influence their decision at all as to whether or not they will worship this God, it is done through selflessness. It's done through surrendering uh, earthly whatever power that we may have. Greater love has no one than one who will what? Lay down their lives for their friends. Martyrdom, <laughs> unfortunately, becomes the impetus behind mission. That's our God, amen? What was it that made the lamb worthy? Two things, oh, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, but two things. One, that he was a person. He could save people because he himself was a person. And number two, it was because he laid down his life. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. By the way, if he hadn't become a person, he couldn't have been slain, right? Can you kill God? Can you kill God if he decides to temporarily inhabit a human body? Yes, you can. And we did, didn't we? Then you have the dragon. Dragon operates by love too, by the way. Except his love is what? His love's conditional. That's what makes him so popular. See, that's what makes the dragon so popular is the dragon claims to love all people too. He claims to respect our free will and everything. But however, when it comes to the point of having to love your enemies, the dragon reels that back a little bit and says, hold on a second, I think Jesus was speaking metaphorically there. And so you can try to love your enemies, but by the way, if, 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 if the enemy continues and that cheek gets too sore, well then you know what you can do? You can just go ahead and use a little force and protect yourself and reach out and maybe even kill them. That's why that God is so popular. He'll let me be Christ when I wanna be and he'll also let me be what when I wanna be. He wins through power and strength. He gives freedom only up to a point. He believes that might makes right. His war is on the offensive. His evolutionary thought preys on the weak. Evolution relies on the weak to continue to die. Evolution says that species who are weak die off so that eventually you end up with the strongest. By the way, the dragon's plan ends up with one man standing. That's it. So that's where we are. So we talk about the law of God and the Bible says what? So that's where we'll pick it up, where we are today in Revelation 12. So when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the, to the male child. The dragon pursues the woman. Remember, he couldn't, ha he couldn't have the child, so he attacks who? 
He attacks the woman. Now, in a lot of ways, we think that that's two completely different things. First of all, this was something that I missed when we went through the last verse that told us this two weeks ago when we were in, I think it's in verse six that talks about him not, you know, the the child being taken away to heaven. And, And since the child was taken away, the dragon turns on the woman. And sometimes we make it sound like it was two completely different things. And also, we're taking the vision literally right, is that the child and the woman are two separate things, but this is something that I missed. You'd say that, why does the prophecy say that the church gave birth to Jesus? If it were literal, if this was not symbolic, did the church give birth to Jesus? No, it sounds like it. And by the way, for people who don't believe, that's what they would accuse us of, right? For people that don't believe, they would say, you made him up. Or what you believe about him, you made him up. But, but what's interesting here is that this, we try to make it a chicken and egg argument, and it is even close, because the church is made up of believers in who? Believers in Jesus. He gave birth to us, right? We're what? We're born again. The church didn't give birth to him. However, the church is the birth of his presence, a new presence. See, the church succeeded his bodily presence. He was here in a human body. He roamed this earth for three and a half years, completing his mission when he was crucified and resurrected. And then what he did was, he said, I'm gonna take my presence and I'm gonna give it to you. So the disciples succeed his bodily presence with their bodies. The church is the fulfillment of that. Jesus told the disciples before he left, I will ask the Father and he will give you another what? Another advocate. I like advocate. I like helper. It all, it all fits. Probably every translation that they've used of that word that you have, I like. To be with you for how long? to be with you forever. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. I can't be with you forever. I took all my father's power and I put it in this body. This body has now been murdered, rent. And he goes, but don't worry, it's a good thing that I go away. Because when I go away, the father will give you what? He'll give you someone else. Which actually someone else is him. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides, he remains with you, and he will be what? He will be in you. I'll not leave you orphaned, I am coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. And on that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God in a single human body. What made him worthy, again, to be humanity's Messiah was that he was human, and that most important, he was slain. He paid the price for our atonement. He made us completely right with the Father again, but not as orphans, and we're no longer, or or never were, if you will, on our own. 
The promise is that the church will be that bodily presence in the world because he abides where? He abides in us. So when the dragon attacks the woman, he's actually attacking the child. The woman did give birth to the child. A new bodily presence. We are that born again presence. So when he attacks us, he's attacking who? And by the way, Jesus told us that. He told us that when he talked about the poor and the hunger, hungering and, and, and the thirsting for righteousness. He said, when you do this to them, you do it to me. Saying that his presence is in who? So we've talked about this in prayer meeting, haven't we? How do you know, how do you know when you leave here that any person that you run into has the Holy Spirit present in them? How do you know that? Because they're standing in front of you doing this. <sighs> Nobody's living without the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is already at present in everyone. We're supposed to be that presence to other people. We're supposed to bring that out. We're supposed to nurture that. By the way, the woman is nourished. I love this, this image. We're going to get to that. But the woman is nourished in the wilderness under the attack of the dragon. God lets the woman fly or flee to the wilderness. And she gets to be nourished and nurtured. Our presence in the world is supposed to be doing that for everybody. You with me? So in an essence, yes, we did give birth to the male child because he gave birth to us. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. But the attack doesn't go unnoticed by the father. The woman given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, two times, and half a time. She's given protection. She's given speed to get there, and the wilderness then protects her. The wilderness itself, the earth itself, if you will. Even told that the protection, the protection will last the duration of the dragon's most pronounced time of persecution. There will come a time when the dragon persecutes the woman and will appear or actually have prevailed. Time, two times, and half a time. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. We'll talk about this when we get there, but real quick, the Hebrew calendar has 360 days. One year, 360 days. Two years, 720 days. Half a year, 180 days. It equals 1,260 days. Which, by the way, in the history of the Christian church, all 1,989 years of it, only 729 of those years have been without the dragon prevailing over the holy ones of the church. Daniel says that he will actually make war with the saints and prevail over them. They appear to win. The dragon appears to win. His church looks like it is the church. By evolutionary standards of the dragon's governance, it is. He did prevail. The whole world wanders after the beast. 
That means that anybody who encounters for the first time, the absolute first time, ever encounters these two gods and this two church, the one they wonder about is that one. We're fascinated with it. Because we play by his rules. We're born into his rules. This fallen kingdom belongs to who? It belongs to the dragon. But the prophecy says, don't worry. From his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. Water in prophetic language is always what? Do you know? People. Water is always people. By the way, did you ever, did you ever think that, that water, uh, while being the only thing on the planet that gives us life, how long can we live without water? Not long, okay? Nothing happens without water. It is the life-giving substance of water. Jesus says that he is a living water, right? The, the water is it. But did you realize, too, that on this planet, water is the most destructive force on the planet? What do we spend most of our time doing? Trying to control water. Because when it gets to places uncontrolled, it does what? It destroys. It destroys homes. It destroys people. It destroys structures. It destroys economies. So this is a very vivid image right here, isn't it? He's not talking about life-giving water pouring out of the dragon's mouth. By the way, the, the water comes from where? Comes from the dragon's mouth. He has his own gospel too. He has his own word too. And his gospel is very attractive on a planet that plays by his rules. Where does the power from God come from? The power is in his what? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Guess what? The dragon has a word too. His gospel reaches people the same way that the lamb that was slain's gospel reaches people. The power is where? It's in the word. But the woman's protected in the wilderness, it says. In the earth, it says. By the way, it's the only thing on this planet that can control. It's the only thing that it could do. What I love about the wilderness is that it's devoid of cities. It's devoid of populations. It doesn't have anybody out there. The river is a danger when it's only rushing through, say, a gully or a wash or banks because when it's contained, it has power, doesn't it? You don't want to be standing in a gully or a wash, right, in Arizona in July, do you? No, because what happens? There's a reason they call them flash floods. That water is on you. What's the solution? It's when the water leaves that channel, it's when it overflows, it spreads out into what? It's, it's, it's when the water rushes down from the mountain and hits the plain. When it hits the plain, what does it do? It, it, it spreads out, right? And the danger then is what? The danger's mitigated. It's not a danger anymore. The church is given room to escape the water. The church is given protection. The wilderness itself protects her. The earth itself protects her. For how long? For 1,260 years. 
So this is the scenario. This is the scenario. The earth came to the help of the woman, opened up its mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was what? Was angry now with who? With the woman. Because now even she's being protected by God. He was angry at first because he couldn't get to the child. Now he's even angrier because the church is protected. He tried, he tried, he, he persecutes the church, 1,260 years, and guess what? There's still some people who came out, still what? Still believing, still a witness. But he's not done, because the ones that come out of that, they're made war on now too. He now tries to make war on the what? On the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of who? and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The rest of, those who remain, what do we call them? The remnant. I should say, what do we call them? What do we call us? The remnant. By the way, real quick, just because a remnant is only a portion of what used to be, doesn't mean that it's small, does it? You notice that he does not mention numbers here? In fact, in Revelation 14, the very first thing he's given is a view of that remnant. And guess what? It's a number that no one can count. So I don't know where we got the idea that the remnant meant small, <laughs> that, the, that the, re, the remnant remains what? Small. Is it a smaller group than what came before? And by the way, the reason it's a smaller group than what comes out of that tribulation of 1260 years is because he killed most of the rest. So after 1260 years, there's a physical remnant, yes, but also more important, there is a spiritual remnant. And you can recognize these people, you can recognize the worshipers of the church, in the church of the lamb that was slain by two qualities. Number one, they keep the what? They keep the commandments of God. And number two, they what? They hold, they contain. You know, you, you, you hold and you're containing something, right? If I walk up and I, and I hug you, I, I, I'd like to think that I'm containing you at that moment. I, I have you. We have each other. But the remnant holds what? The testimony of Jesus. The, the remnant has the testimony of Jesus where? In them. We're his presence. So let's start with the first one. Keep the commandments of God. What do we say? What do we say? We, when people ask us, uh, what, what makes you remnant? Well, we keep the commandments of God. And before we can even take a breath or someone can ask another question, what, what's the next thing that comes out of our mouth? All of them, by the way. Especially the fourth. As a matter of fact, in our baptismal vow, that's what it says. We, we, don't, we don't stop at just commandment keeping. We have to remind people that we keep what? All of them. We put it in our, we, we, we say in, a, in the baptismal vow is that we recognize the 10 commandments as a transcript of his character. By the way, I agree with that. But, but I, want you, I want you to think a little while and maybe not right now, but, but when, you're, when you're at home trying to appease your anger of me because of what you're about to hear, <laughs> I want you to think of what a transcript is. 
Okay, I just, just, just keep that in mind, all right? I want you to think of what a transcript is, all right? But we believe that, that, that the Ten Commandments is a transcript of his character and that, that the vow goes on to say that my purpose with the indwelling Christ is to keep this law, including the fourth one, requiring the observance of the seventh day. We can't let just commandment keeping come out of our mouth. We have to remind people that we keep how many? All of them. Before I go on, do we? Have we? And if the transcript is our shot, if the transcript is what we're shooting for, then I'm here to tell you, we're in the wrong church. Because I will tell you, and we'll see, we'll see it, especially starting next week, the dragon is fine with the transcript. The dragon would leave us right at the transcript. He doesn't want to go on of what actually Jesus is telling the church of the lamb that was slain when it says that you will keep the commandments of God. See, the Ten Commandments, though we acknowledge as a transcript, was first given to Israel twice. The transcript was given them twice in two separate forms. Was the first time that they were given the transcript, was it on, on a tablet? No, the first time was, was that he spoke it to them, but, it, but from where? From the mountain. He speaks it to them. He tells them the Ten Commandments. That's the first time they received the transcript. Then he gives them to them on the tablets, about 40 days later. And by the way, when he gives it to them 40 days later, when Moses shows up with that second transcript, what are they doing? They're worshiping another God that they made out of molten gold. What good is the transcript then? And obviously the first transcript, what did it do for Israel? What has the transcript done for God's people when he first gave it to them? By the way, was the transcript his plan? What did he want? He didn't want to speak it to them from the mountain. He was inviting them up the mountain to be in his what? To be in his presence. If you're going to ask yourself what the difference between the transcript and God himself is, it's one thing. The transcript does not have his presence. So yes, the Ten Commandments are a transcript. But if we believe that all we need to do is adhere to the transcript in order to be members of the church that was slain, of the lamb that was slain, like I said, I'll point it out to you next, next couple of weeks. The dragon's fine with the transcript because the, the, the transcript covers up what the dragon is actually after. It makes the dragon look righteous. And that's the problem with the transcript, isn't it? We can be a commandment keeper, but does that necessarily make us a righteous lover of God and of people? But it sure makes us look like it, doesn't it? So most worshipers are fine with it. Let's just leave it at the transcript. But that isn't what he's saying, is it? See, as God's children, they were missing something. They were missing his presence. They were missing the testimony. 
What is the testimony of Jesus? It's the word. The second thing is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony is who? It's him. The commandment, the life that the transcript ascribes to, the law in the flesh, the walking, talking law in the flesh is him. He's the testimony. And if we have him living in us, the transcript is not our standard. You with me? The one who believes in the Son of God has what? Has the testimony in himself. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You have the testimony. Where? Here. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to add to it by trying to be a better commandment keeper. Your faith allows you to love. Your love allows you to what? Fulfill the law. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us what? Eternal life, and that life is in his son, and if you believe, you have that life in you. When? Now? Wait a minute, Mary, not after you become a better commandment keeper? Not after you're convinced that you need to keep all of them? Paul asked the question, was Abraham righteous when he believed or was he righteous after he was circumcised? So he was righteous before he was circumcised. He was righteous before he even made a move to become a commandment keeper. By the way, the commandment to become circumcised is a commandment from who? It's a commandment from God. But what made Abraham righteous before he was circumcised was that he what? That he believed. Jesus is that testimony because he's in us. If we have him, we have eternal life. Jesus arguing with the people that would stop at the transcript, the people that were very happy, if you will, to worship the transcript rather than that who the transcript points to, Jesus says this to them, you search the scriptures, you search the transcript because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that testify on my behalf. They have my testimony. See, if I stop at the transcript, I miss the what? I may be keeping the commandments of God, but I don't have the what? I don't have the testimony, which means I'm not what? I'm not remnant. Yet you refuse to come to me for what? For life. Why? Because the transcript's enough. I am rich and have need of nothing. Laodicea, the Seventh-day Adventist church, according to our prophet, is rich and has need of nothing. Why? Because we worship the transcript. And by the way, if we're worshiping the transcript, if we're good with the transcript, if that is our ground zero, if that is it, I'm sorry, we're not what? We're not remnant. Which means actually, we're kind of leaning towards that other church. I told you we liked him. You search the scriptures. 
When Jesus says scriptures, he means all of it. The law, the prophets, the writings, ceremonial, civil, all of it. The Bible, everything that's written down on stone, on paper, on parchment, in my screen right here, on that screen right there. But the thing about those words, about those transcripts, it is missing something. And what is it missing? It's missing his presence. It's missing his soul, his life, his breath. And if we're good with the transcript, then we refuse to come to him for that. And Laodicea is happy with that. How do I know? Because they locked his presence out. Who is it? It's Jesus. What do you mean it's Jesus? We're the remnant church of Jesus. We've got all the Jesus we need right in here. I don't know who you are but you only have the transcript. I'm here to give you life, to give you breath, to give you mercy. The Sabbath, yeah. In one way, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It is, amen? What does the law say about the Sabbath? What does the commandment say about the Sabbath? says one thing, what? Don't. Don't what? Don't work. Six days, you can do all your what? All the law says is what? Don't work. And by, by not working is how you are remembering. It's how you are keeping it holy. It's how you are setting that day apart. By the way, this is what holy means. Holy means set apart for a purpose. So all the law says is what? Don't. You remember this example? The disciples were going along and they were plucking uh, heads of grain and it was a particular day, it was Sabbath. It was Sabbath afternoon and the disciples were hungry. They began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, I, I have all of it. I wrote down all of, the, of what the Talmud says, the, and the, the, the 39 activities that could be possibly construed at work. I told you, they came up with 1,700 emendations to the commandment on how to keep it, on how not to work. 39 activities that were considered as work. The disciples are doing four of them right now. They're harvesting, they're threshing, they're preparing. I forget what the fourth one is. I think it's the walk. They've walked too far away from their homes for it to be a Sabbath walk. I think is what, what has been pointed at. But, but, but then again, we don't know. They're at least violating three of them. And by the way, if you violate the least of the law, you violated what? You violated all of it. So, so, so yes, the, the, the Pharisees had an idea of what work was, but I will tell you that we define it as work also. Right? It's some sort of work. Ask a farmer whether or not harvesting and threshing is work. The commandment says simply don't work. But what's the commandment? What's the transcript not take into consideration? The disciples are what? They're hungry. Does the law know that? Does the law care about that? And by the way, the people that 
keep the commandment according to the transcript, they don't care either. Which is why they've told Jesus to tell them to what? Stop. And if you were the Messiah and you knew the law of God, you would do it right now. And Jesus could have. He could have. But if he did, what would they be left with? Their hunger. By the way, if the disciples are hungry, guess who else is hungry? He is, right? He's been out with them. So he uses a midrash. He pulls out his knowledge of the, of the transcript. Does Jesus know the transcript? Oh yeah, he knows the transcript, doesn't he? And he said to them, have you not read what David, when he and his companions did when they were hungry? He entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath, yet are guiltless? By the way, okay, did David break the law? Did he break the law? Yes, the law says no one eats that bread. It's the show bread. It's the bread in the holy place. That is meant for the priests and the priests alone. It was changed every Sabbath. And when it, when it was done and changed, they took those 12 tortillas, those 12 pitas, if you will, and they distributed it to all the priests so that they could eat. The ones that happened to be on duty were the ones that got to eat of the bread, the bread of life. David wasn't a priest, not even close. Came from the wrong tribe, he holds the wrong office. By the way, who was at most, most fault for breaking the law that day? Ahimelech, the high priest, he should have known, right? He's the one that gives it to David. By the way, are the priests working on Sabbath? Then they're what? They're breaking the law. Guess who else is? I am. I'm working. If you don't think that I'm working now, let me try next week by not preaching. How long would you let me hang around? How long would you let me deposit your tithe money into my bank account? Not long, right? So guess who's working on the Sabbath? I work harder on the Sabbath than I work any other day. I know, this doesn't look like work. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it. it, it there's, there's very few things I love more than this. You can tell, look how long I do it. Every Sabbath. But I'm what? I'm breaking the law. Right? Now what would we say? We'd say, well, certain kind of work is what? Is okay. In other words, you just, you just get it winked at because certain kinds of work could be, uh, it, you, you can, uh, Marion, uh, you, gave, you gave the testimony. Um, uh, the North American division has set aside uh, you know, uh, a particular Sabbath a month and they call it Compassion Sabbath because the, the argument then that, the, that these Pharisees and, and religious leaders had with Jesus was, it, Jesus asked them, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And what's the answer? 
No, see, sometimes then what we think is, 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 is that this, he, Jesus said, look, there's something greater than the temple here. There's something greater than working and not working. Is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? No, because when you're doing good on the Sabbath, you're exhibiting what? You're exhibiting mercy. That's what, what we hope to do for heaven's healing hands, amen? That's what we hope to do on the Sabbath. See, but we look at it wrong, I think. We, we kind of look at it differently. We kind of look at it wrong. We think, okay, well, as long as it's merciful work, then it's okay to break the law. And what we forget is what Jesus told them, what he told them about their work. But if you had known this, he says, I desire mercy and not what? And not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. If you go out and you do good work on the Sabbath, don't go home saying, I broke the Sabbath, but God said it was okay because it was merciful. No, if you love and have mercy, you kept the commandment. You fulfilled the commandment. You didn't break it. You with me? We look at it wrong, don't we? Because mercy, chesed, that beautiful word, hesed, it's translated as steadfast love, love that will not go away, love that only belongs to God. It is the Hebrew version of agape. Agape in Greek is unconditional love, amen? It's the love that only God has. Hesed is the Hebrew equivalent of that. It is love that won't go away. It's mercy that is ever-present. I desire hesed, I desire mercy. See, the Pharisees are watching the disciples break the law and they claim if Jesus was the Messiah, he would know the law and he would rebuke them. And Jesus could have done it. He could have obeyed the letter. And who would have been praising Jesus today 2,000 years later if he obeyed that commandment? We would. Why? Because he's a commandment keeper. It's almost like he's telling us 2,000 years ago already saying, sorry to disappoint you guys. But I'm gonna have mercy on my disciples. They're hungry. And the law will not provide anything for them. The law only tells them when they're breaking it. The law's missing hesed. Doesn't take into consideration the people of flesh and blood, living people. The sterile written law does not consider them. It can't. It's first in the church just a year or two. That's, this is, the transcript is what dictated. And I'm sure that I'm not telling a story that you haven't heard. You probably experienced this too. Has there ever been a time in your life as an Adventist Christian where the transcript dictated what you did and did not do between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday? How many are with me? And uh, we went to church and we were invited to, I forget what it was, it was a, I think it was an afternoon concert if I remember right, and we drove to the city that it was in and it happened to be like an hour away. And, and we, we fixed our lunch at home and we, we ate lunch at home, but it was kind of early, it was about 11.30 when we ate lunch. And, and we go to the concert and, and, and the concert ends at about 3.30, 4. 
and we still have another hour and a half drive, two hour drive home. And my son's three years old. And guess what? He's hungry. (laughs) It's July in California, which means the sun isn't gonna set until like what, midnight that night? It might as well be because that's how far off it seemed. And I didn't make him wait until sundown, but I did make him wait that whole two hour drive home and he was absolutely miserable. And so and I guess you could say, Greg, come on, give yourself a break. He was only three. Yeah, he was only three, which means I was supposed to be looking out for him. And I made him wait because of the transcript. I don't care if he doesn't remember it. I don't care if it doesn't affect him. I still remember it. Abraham Heschel, in his book, The Prophets, commenting on this verse, Hosea 6.6, says, certainly, Hosea could certainly be considered in harmony with many other pre-exilic prophets who uttered violent attacks on sacrifices. Amos 5, 21 through 27, Isaiah 1, 11 to 17, Micah 6, 6 to 8, Jeremiah 6, 20, 7, 21 to 23, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Psalm 40, verse 6, 50, verses 12 and 13, they all utter absolute uh, hor- you know, uh, anathema on the sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What are your sacrifices to me? We see, we see that in all of those. These prophets, he says, stress the primacy of morality over sacrifice, but even proclaim that the worth of worship, far from being absolute, is contingent upon moral living. And when immorality prevails, worship is detestable. If we're going to use the transcript and be immoral to to our children and be immoral to other people, then that worship is detestable. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, and the thing is, is that the sacrifice comes from a transcript, doesn't it? There are lengthy, long transcripts on how to what? In Leviticus, in Exodus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, on how to bring your what? To bring your sacrifices. Do you know what's written in the Talmud? That the shohelet, the the ritual slaughterer, the one that will slaughter the sacrifice for you, it's written in the Talmud that says, if it ever gets to the point to where the shohelet cannot wet the blade with his tears, he's no longer fit for the job. Questioning man's right to worship through offerings and songs, they maintained, the prophets again, the primary way of serving God is through love, justice, and righteousness. Now Hosea was not condemning the practice of sacrifice itself, nor were any of these prophets. If we believe that, we would have to conclude that Isaiah intended to discourage the practice of prayer. They did, however, claim that deeds of injustice vitiate both sacrifice and prayer. We may not drown the cries of the oppressed with the noise of hymns, nor buy off the Lord with increased offerings. The prophets disparaged the cult, the sacrifice, when it became a substitute for righteousness. 
Can you say that Jesus was also one of those prophets that disparaged the shadow or disparaged the sacrifice because it became a substitute for righteousness? Could we go as far as to say that Jesus was a prophet that disparaged the keeping of the transcript because it became a substitute for righteousness? And that his believers who claim to have his presence and believe in him are willing to substitute the transcript for his love and mercy. I think Jesus would be included in one of those prophets that Rabbi Heschel said. I'll try to finish real quick. In Jesus' dealings with these transcript keepers, in, in his walk, if you were with us in prayer meeting through the Gospel of John, especially the very last, I, well, not the last, but I would say from chapters eight all the way to the end, uh, Jesus, there were always three groups of people who were to hear Jesus' words, were to, to, you know, to hear him preach, you know, to, to hear him uh, uh, talk about being the living word and what it looked like on top of living the living word, on top of healing everybody that came to him and, 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 and all the things, the signs, there was, there was preaching, there was talking. And there were always three groups. There was Jesus and the disciples themselves, the religious leaders, the transcript experts, the ones who are actually holding the transcript, actually holding their scriptures and telling Jesus, the living word, you can't be who you say to be. Why? Because God's word says you can't. You can't be God's word because God's word says that you can't. And then the other group was the crowd. The other group was really one that had no stake in either, but they're listening to Jesus and they're listening to the debate, right? They're listening to the argument. And the crowd is, is, is made known. The crowd is, is skeptical. The crowd has been, for the most part, locked out by the transcript keepers. They've been told that they don't belong in the church because they don't keep up with the transcript. They find themselves on the outside of the fold because they can't measure up to the transcript. In one particular heated exchange, Jesus lays it down hard. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that, that certain, uh, a certain type of believer admires is when somebody says, well, you know, don't tiptoe around it. You know, nobody calls sin, sin anymore. Nobody calls a spade a spade. Well, Jesus did it that day. In chapter eight, beginning in verse 23, he tells them, he says, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. By the way, is that the truth? You bet it's the truth, Right? no matter who he's talking to. But he's talking to the church now. He's talking to those who claim to believe, the ones that keep his commandments and have the testimony of the Father. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe in, that I am he. He comes flat out and tells them, if you, I, I know you don't believe I, I am who I claim, I, I claim to be. I know that you don't believe that, but guess what? If you don't, you'll what? You'll die. Is, is that somebody who's afraid of calling sin a sin? A spade a spade? He just flat out what? Flat out tells them. By the way, the only group, these, this, that is the only group of people that he speaks this way to. He doesn't talk that way to the crowd, does he? He certainly doesn't talk that way to the disciples. 
He certainly doesn't talk that way to any sinner that came to him looking for healing or cleansing. And they're taken aback. They say, who are you? Jesus says, why do I speak to you at all? He actually said that. Why do I speak to you at all? I have much to say about you and much to condemn. But the one who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. And they didn't understand as he was speaking about the father. Now again, is he right? Absolutely he's right. That is nothing but truth right there. That is, that is truth unfiltered, right? He, he, he points out sin. He calls a spade to say, I got much to say and much to condemn, he says to them. And they don't what? They don't understand and they don't believe. But then this, this, something happens in this discourse. Something happens to change it. Jesus actually changes it with a word. Jesus said, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me, and the one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what is pleasing to him. And the people that are listening to that now, the unbelieving crowd, the skeptical crowd, the transcript keepers who've just been condemned by his word, it says this, and as he was saying these things, many what? Many believed. He fought with them with the transcript. He spits the transcript right back at them, back and forth, back and forth. And by the way, he kills them. He murders them. Every argument that he has, he murders them. In prayer meeting, we were going, yes! Right? Remember that? And when he did, none of them what? But he mentions the cross once. He mentions one thing, that one day when I die for you, then you will begin to understand. Which means that even the transcript keepers have what? They have hope. See, the dragon would turn around and walk away after he killed them in the debate, right? The dragon would turn around and walk away. The dragon would say, you know what? You don't believe in me? Okay, fine. I just killed you, by the way, in the debate. <laughs> you know, everyone would say that I won. And we found out in prayer meeting that that was us, that we actually wished that Jesus would do that, right? Because if Jesus did it, then what? Then we could. But he didn't. He mentions the cross one time. He mentions it one time, the second that he mentions it, that he, that he pleases the Father with his presence, always with his presence, and that he will be lifted up to prove it to everybody. They mention it once, and all of a sudden they begin to what? They begin to believe. Not a debate, not refuting and piling up biblical evidence, because Jesus destroys them with that. That isn't what gets them to believe. What gets them to believe is that he is willing to die for them too. And we, we remember that our commandment keeping as an identifier of being remnant has to hold the testimony of Jesus. We can't just be right in the transcript. We have to contain his mercy. We have to be willing to let them know that we're willing to be lifted up. You with me? That we're willing to die. 
I pointed out before, living now in the 21st century, although the past two years, I'm not 100% sure, but most of the time, living now in the 21st century, most of us sitting here will never be asked to be martyrs. Martyrs in the sense that we believe martyrs, right? Probably not. But where have we asked to be martyrs? One of the things is, are you willing to sacrifice being right? And the answer is no, if we join this church to be right. If we join this church to be righter than anybody else, if we join this church to hold a transcript, to hold a, a, a one commandment over somebody's head to let them know that they're wrong and we're right, then I'm sorry. If we're not willing to do that, then we would never ever be willing to be a martyr. Because remember, we overcome the same way that the lamb overcame, by his blood, by his martyrdom. And if he was willing to do it for us, and by the way, did he sacrifice being right? Yeah, he did. The first children he creates decides that they don't want to live by his rules. They don't want to live by his transcript. They walk away from him, and what does God do? He doesn't take his rightness and walk away. He sacrifices his right to be right in order to reach those who are what? Who are wrong. So remember, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, with the remnant, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What we've missed in this as, a, as an identifier is that when you look at the transcript, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you have the first three that all have to do with who? They all have to do with God, right? Don't take his name in vain. Don't worship other gods. Don't make idols, right? You have the first three. Then the fourth one, I'm gonna skip over that for a second, but you get to the fifth one. And after the fifth one, they, it's everything to do with who? It's everything to do with the people in our lives, beginning with our parents, and then moving out to our neighbors, and then moving out even to, to even wanting to do harm to our neighbors, or wanting something of our neighbors. The Sabbath is the one that links them both. Because the Sabbath has this spiritual component, what I'm willing to do for God, but it also has this physical component of what I'm willing to do for my, for my fellow worshipers. I, I'm willing to do good on the Sabbath, right? So when Jesus says, when he says this, when he says, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, he does the commandments of God first. Those who keep the commandments of God. Those who love God. Because when Jesus was asked what the two greatest commandments were, he said the first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The first three, amen? Okay. And the second, he said, is as great. And the only reason that it's second is because living in a world where two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time, one of them has to be second. But if it was up to him, it wouldn't be. It would still be first. It is love your neighbor as yourself. Look at this right here. The prophecy is the transcript right in front of us. If you love God and love your neighbor, guess what? You've gone beyond the transcript. You've fulfilled the transcript. You'll never fall short.
So when it comes time to, to mission, when it comes time to reach out, if we think that we can short circuit this or shortcut it by going out and, 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 and trying to reach people in this evolutionary way, of reaching people by, by, by uh, getting into debates about the truth. Again, remember, no one was ever won to Christ because they lost an argument. It looks like it. And unfortunately, yes, there are a lot of people who can become church members because they lost an argument. And if they do, by the way, whose fault is that? It's ours. It's how we decided to reach them. Or not reach them. That's how we decided to offend them. One thing I left out from last week, and thank you, I'm, I'm almost there. But one thing I left out from last week, remember when I was talking about the evolutionary debate, you know, between creation and evolution and, and, and all of that? I left out this, this one little story that, that uh, I know this uh, Adventist geologist who worked for years at the Geoscience Research Institute. She's semi-retired now, she's, she's almost there. But she said one time, I just saw her a couple of years ago, she said, when you're living in the world of geology, of, especially of evolutionary geology, as a creationist, you're automatically labeled as something. You're auto automatically labeled as stupid, basically. See, but all of a sudden, when, when, when these brilliant creationist scientists began to see evidence and began to interpret it, and it began to become popular, and, 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 and then maybe uh, you know, flood geology or hydrogeology uh, has, has its point and everything. When that happened, then, then what happened was, was that the creationists saw that they were winning, so they began to mound up evidence. And she said, I spent 30 years doing that. She said, I spent 30 years debating with my fellow geologists, geologists who wouldn't believe in God, wouldn't believe in creation, because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I thought that that was witnessing. And she said, and I look back at the end of my career and after 30 years of debate, she said, I have zero friends. So she said, for the years that I have left in geology, guess what I am not going to do from here on out? I'm not gonna debate. I don't care, she said, how much I'm baited. I don't care how much people put me down or put God down. I don't care about my reputation among them anymore. Because Jesus certainly didn't care about his reputation, did he? He ruined his reputation. He ate with the wrong people. He socialized with the wrong people. He walked with the wrong people. He healed the wrong people. He preached to the wrong people. And he gave the kingdom to the wrong people. He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care when people called him the devil. He went on what? He went on loving the Father didn't just choose love as a hobby. The Father didn't just choose love uh, be, uh, you know, when it worked out in his favor. The Father's in it for a penny, he's in it for the pound. He will take love all the way to the wall. And that's what it means to be in the church of the lamb that was slain. If we're not, and believe me, there are many of us who aren't. There are many of us who are just fine with being transcript keepers. And I understand, and I understand the pull. And I also understand that I'm standing in front of you like I know what I'm talking about, because I'm the same way. And so I adopt the father of the, I adopt the, the idea or the philosophy of the father of that little child that they couldn't cast the demon out of. Lord, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. And we have to begin to trust that that faith means something. We have to begin to believe that faith is not only all we need, it's all we're gonna get. And then we can just offer something more than just a present truth transcript. You and I could be present truth presence if we simply would love. Love God with all my heart and all my soul. Love my neighbor as myself. Love them even more than just wanting to throw truth at them every day. Can truth be loving? Yes. Is love the truth? Yes. But the truth can't be without the testimony. And the testimony is the truth. Okay. Thank you for holding on again. By the way, last week, I was only at 63 minutes. You let Dan preach for 71 minutes, so I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I don't know what it's gonna be this week. But thank you for holding on. I love being in a group of people who are at least willing to think about who we are, where we are, and how we reach somebody else. If we can keep doing that, we can continue then to separate ourselves from that dragon who calls himself God. And we can be sure to avoid ever worshiping in his church. No matter how good he's gonna make it look. And believe me, starting next week, okay? So thank you again for holding on with me.